We have been going over the book of Hebrews in our study on Sunday. And so as we begin, let us start with a prayer. Please pray with me one more time. O Heavenly Father, whose law is perfect, converting the soul, a sure testimony, giving wisdom to the unlearned, and enlightening the eyes, we humbly implore you, through your boundless goodness, to enlighten our blind intellect by your Holy Spirit, so that we may truly understand and profess your law and live according to it. Since it has pleased you, most merciful Father, to reveal the mysteries of your will only to the little ones, and since you look to him alone who is of a humble and contrite spirit, who has reverence for your word, grant us a humble spirit and keep us from all fleshly wisdom, which is enmity against you. Bring to the right way who those who stray from the truth so that we all may unanimously serve you in holiness and righteousness all the days of our life. We ask this from you, most merciful Father, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 to 18. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 to 18. You can find that section in your pew Bible on page 942. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 to 18. When you have found it, please rise for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffer, suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Last week, I had mentioned the hypostatic union. There is nothing like the hypostatic union in all existence. In the person of Jesus Christ, there is the fullness of deity and the fullness of humanity. This is where we have heard it being said that God is, uh, Jesus is both truly God and truly man. We say it when we recite the Nicene Creed. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made, 
for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. So what we are reciting is that Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ, has two natures, and they are both divine and human. Jesus has two natures. They are both divine and human. It's heresy. And heresy means that you hold on to a view or doctrine that opposes the orthodox faith or the true faith. It's heresy to believe that Jesus had only one nature or a mix of the two or some kind of a mix to form one new nature. There is a need to remind every generation of the dangers of these heresies because for some reason a subtle form of these heresies pop up with every new generation. The idea of a theanthropic nature or the idea that Jesus was a mixture of two natures is what we call the monophysite heresy. The monophysite heresy continues to morph to whatever degree with each subsequent generation, like I've mentioned. But the heresy involves Jesus housing a deified human nature or a humanized divine nature. We must know Christ rightly. We must know Christ rightly as purported by the word of God. Of Jesus, Colossians 2.9 says... For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That means, that means there is perfect unity between the divine and human nature, hence the term hypostatic union. And so we must distinguish the two natures without separating them. The person of Jesus lacks nothing that is intrinsic to humanity, and he lacks nothing that is intrinsic to deity. That's why R.C. Sproul, in his book called Essential Truths of the Christian Faith, on chapter 27, can say, quote, When Jesus hungers, for example, we see that as a manifestation of the human nature, not the divine. What is said of the divine nature or of the human nature may be affirmed of the person. On the cross, for example, Christ, the God-man, died. This, however, is not to say that God perished on the cross. So, in summary, Jesus is truly God and truly man. In every way, what makes humans human, Jesus is human. And in every way that makes God God, Jesus is God. So why is this all important? Why do I start off with something that may seem a little heady? Of course, not for anyone here, but... It's important because rightly understanding this will help us to know what the Bible wants us to know. So rightly understanding this is going to help us to understand what the Bible wants us to know about the nature of Jesus Christ. We know this and we want to know this because the Bible is saying that we should know this. And so that's why we don't disengage our minds on Sunday service. We don't just let the music wash over us and I just tell funny stories and then we go home feeling happy-go-lucky. During the service, what we do is we engage our minds and we see that God is teaching his people about who he is. And that's why it's so important 
that we know about the nature of Christ because it's the Bible that wants us to know about the nature of Christ. And if I understand this part, what I just said, then it will help us even to understand today's text. In verse 10, we are given the main themes of this passage that was read before the author exposits even more scripture. In verse 10 it says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. What? And so if you just read that, you need an explanation. So he takes verse 10, and then he puts out the themes, and then from verse 11 all the way down, he's going to explain what he just said. But he starts out by saying, it was fitting. This phrase is connected to the past verse, the following, to, to connect this past verse to this following passage. That means what was fitting. Fitting means what's proper, what's right. And that verse was speaking of verse 9. It was speaking of Jesus' death. Jesus' Jesus's death is now being equated with something proper and fitting. That is the linear progression that is happening in Hebrews. And why is this notable? Why is it important? This is notable because to the Jews back then and even now today, the idea of a suffering Messiah, the idea of a suffering Savior was and still is abhorrent. This subject wasn't something that the Jews would want to even touch. Minimally, it would be something that just wouldn't interest them. But the writer of Hebrews flips this notion 180 degrees and he goes not to the minimalist position, but to the maximalist position where he says that this topic of the Messiah dying is highly fitting. It's equated with being really right. Why is it that the Savior must die? Again, we are reminded of who we are talking about from verse 9. It's God. He is for whom and by whom all things exist. In the beginning you have God, and in the end you have God. It starts with God, the Alpha, and it ends with God, the Omega. And what does He do? What does God do? And He's laying out the themes for us to get in the following verses. Number one, he brings many sons to glory. Number two, through the founder of their salvation. And number three, by making him perfect through suffering. Those are the three themes. The rest of the passage is going to be an explanation of this statement. And because there are three subjects, there are three points for us to follow. Namely, unity, champion, and high priest. Unity, champion, and high priest. It's then... Unity in the Son, who is our champion and high priest. That's the theme. But before getting back to that topic, the author of Hebrew immediately qualifies this statement to make perfect. Is the Son made perfect as if he wasn't perfect before? That's what you would think. What does it mean to be made perfect? 
And so he qualifies that immediately in verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. The common understanding of sanctify is to make holy. But what does it mean to be made holy? If I say you are being made holy, what does that essentially mean? It means that you are set apart. That's what being holy is. Holy means to be set apart. So here it is made clear that there is only one who does the sanctifying and those who are sanctified. Literally, you would read this verse as sanctifier, sanctified, all out of one. So he who sanctifies or sets apart is he himself set apart because he is the origin of both the sanctifier and sanctified. So when God leads, so what does this all mean? When God leads people through sanctification, when God leads people through this journey and process of holiness, this is an experience that he himself has also passed through because sanctification isn't just the act of becoming perfect. Jesus was perfect in every way. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. But sanctification here is talking about being set apart. And Jesus was set apart for us so that we also could be sanctified. This follows a similar pattern of thought from Romans 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This qualifying statement also brings back the three themes. Verse 11 also brings back the three themes we saw from verse 10 by also ending it by saying that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Going back to the statement, bringing many sons to glory. Now, let's go to the explanation of what he does. The first point, unity. Unity. For this, we are given three quotations from the Bible back to back. The first is from Psalm 22, verse 22. And you might be like, whoa, there's a lot of twos in all these verses. First Peter 2, verse 22. Now Psalm 22, verse 22. Saying, this is what he's quoting from Psalm 22, 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. By the way, the twos have nothing to do with anything. I just find it kind of fascinating. There's all these twos today. But early Christians recognized the psalm to be, it's also February, but early Christians recognized the psalm to be messianic because of, the, because of Jesus' cry quoting this psalm. He quoted the beginning of Psalm 22 when he was on the cross. He cries out with a cry of abandonment that would eventually, so you would see Jesus crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is Psalm 22, verse 1, and it would eventually go to verse 22 of that psalm. And verse 22 of that psalm is a triumphant conclusion. This is where you would see then how Jesus, who dies for sinners, the just dying for the unjust, the righteous dying for the unrighteous, would lead to this quote, I will tell of your name to my brothers. Jesus, what he is doing, he is identifying, he is identifying with those he died for. 
by calling them brothers because he is precisely the one that is passing through this suffering for them. And in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. That word congregation is the word ecclesia, which means the word for church. The company of the brethren is described here. Who are Jesus' brothers? In Mark chapter 3, it says, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. People thought Jesus was crazy at the time. There he's going around, doing all these speeches. There are all these happenings, events happening around them. It's like, you have to gather your son, or you have to gather your brother. He's causing a ruckus. So his mother and his brothers come. And it's uh, continuing on in Mark chapter 3, verse 32. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him this, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. This is how Jesus answers. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Who are the brothers of Jesus? The ones around Jesus. It's the ones that he has called out. These are his disciples. These are his mother and brothers. These are his brethren. This is the church. Who is Jesus bringing to himself? The ecclesia, the church. Verse 13, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. There are a lot of two verses, and this next verse is also from 2 Samuel chapter 22. I kid you not, 2 Samuel chapter 22, and it also is from Isaiah 8.17. But 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 3, Isaiah chapter 8, verse 17, they both work in this first quotation, I will put my trust in him, because the author then puts the emphatic I a go to start this quote. And when applied to Jesus Christ, this quote takes on a more significant tone. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is saying, I, yes, even I will put my trust in him, meaning God. Even I will put my trust in him. And the significance of this is that the Messiah is put on an equal plane with his brothers that we mentioned before in what? Trusting in God. What does that mean? That means Jesus also is doing God's will. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus would pray, Father, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Who is he equating and identifying himself with here when he prays that? Jesus purposely puts himself in where we would be able to share this attitude of trusting in God and following his will. I will put my trust in him is a statement that says, God, may your will be done. Not my will, but your will. This, as time goes on, as the Christian matures, becomes the most beautiful mantra to live by. The flip side of that would be, not your will, but my will be done. That's the flip side. It's when you hear, you won't die if you eat that fruit. God lied to you. In fact, if you eat that fruit, you will be like God. Do it 
your way, not God's way. Do it your way. Funeral directors across this country note that the number one most popular songs that's played at atheists or unbelievers' funerals is the Frank Sinatra song, My Way. It's a funeral favorite. The lyrics and more, much more than this, I did it my way. Unbelievers, as this song is played and sung also in that funeral ceremony, take part in a communion. It is a fellowship. Communion means fellowship amongst those who abide by the words of this dirge of death, following in the footsteps of their first parents. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The allures that felled our first parents is not lessened. The seductiveness of the fruit still holds sway today, and its magnetism continues to draw people down to the depths of hell, even singing as they make their way down there. However, it is Christ who shows us the beauty of God's will by being the first fruits, the founder of our salvation. He has paved a way for us to now live in accordance with God's will. The second quotation is from the very next verse of Isaiah chapter 8, verse 17, which is Isaiah 8, verse 18. I believe this is why the first quotation from 17 is separated from 18 because it was actually also referenced back to 2 Samuel 22. Anyway, that's, otherwise, why would he do that? He would just put it together. But he separates Isaiah 7, 8, 17 to Isaiah 8, 18 because, with an and, because in this context... When you read this quote, in the context that Isaiah wrote that quote would be when he would be persecuted, Isaiah would eventually be martyred. There's tradition that says Isaiah was sawed in half, and that's how he was killed. In referencing then, in this context, Isaiah is referencing his own children and disciples who would be the faithful remnant of Israel. People didn't want to hear bad news just give us good news. Just give us good news. Don't tell us bad news. And when Isaiah would say these things, it's like, we don't like that. We don't like what you're saying. And they would eventually persecute and have him killed. But what is what Isaiah is saying? If you were a child of God, if you belong to God, you would rally around Isaiah. There's a change here. Jesus is now that rallying point. He is the representative and the head uniting to himself a new covenant community that will lead to glory through his suffering, which leads us to point number two. Now that we have these three quotes of the Bible given to us, this is what the author of Hebrews is going to explain. Who are we being united to? I get it. There's unity in Christ. But who are we being united to? <clears throat> And in verse 10, we saw it was written as founder of salvation. The word for founder is the Greek word for archegos. It means founder. It means pioneer. It's also used <clears throat> excuse me, twice in Acts by Peter in chapter 3 and chapter 5. 
In his sermons in chapter 3, Peter uses archegos and is translated as author. In chapter 5, Peter also uses archegos and is translated as leader, but both in capitalized letters. If you have your Bibles in front of you, in chapter 3, it's author, capital A. In chapter 5, it's leader, capital L. And so what is archegos? Is it leader? Is it author? Is it pioneer? What is it? It's all of these things. It's all of these things. It means first among brethren. It means ruler. It means trailblazer. It is a title reserved for only Jesus Christ in the New Testament. But if you're listening to this in context, the Hellenistic Jews, that means Jews who lived outside of Israel, those Jews who would be familiar with Greek thought and education, would have seen the parallel by calling Jesus Archegos and the pagan version of what they thought Archegos was, namely Hercules. Hercules is, interestingly enough, Hercules, if you know your mythology, is known to be what? Half God, half God. Half God, half man, excuse me. Half man, half God. He was born of a human mother, Alcmene, and his father being Zeus. He would have been compared then with Jesus. But how is the pagan Archegos different and contrasted with Christ? First, let me bring you back to what I mentioned before, the Monophysite heresy. While Hercules was half man, half God, Jesus was not half anything. He was truly man and truly God. Later on, scholars would change it to say that Hercules wasn't really half man, half God. He was just a mortal with godlike strength. Again, it's all a degree of slight change, but it's all a monophysite heresy if you apply that to Jesus Christ. So how else is Jesus a different archegos than the other pagan ideas at the time? Well, this archegos secured our salvation. How? Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Again, the language of children comes up to point us back to the unity with the son, but also to point out that he shared flesh and blood with us. Jesus wasn't half human. He was truly human in every way that put him and humans, what? It put him and humans in a shared space in reality. That means Jesus was a human in a fixed point in time, and this was by his own choice. He took on human nature. Why? Why did he come into time, space, matter? Why did he come into this place to destroy the devil? something that Adam or any subsequent descendant could not do. The primary enemy we face, the primary enemy we face is not the opposition political party. It's not even enemy nations. It's not poverty. I want you to hear me on this. Our primary enemy is not poverty. It's not injustice. It's not your wife. It's not your husband. The primary enemy we face is the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. 
When the devil seduced mankind to rebel against God, he gained this power and humanity became subject to his whims. Jesus, even when addressing the Jews in John 8, would say this in John 8, 44. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Seems a little harsh, but this is what Jesus is saying to the Jews. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That may seem extreme, but that is what enslaved people do. If you're ever addicted to anything, you can hate it all you want. You can hate your addiction, but because you're enslaved, you still do it. They do the whims of their master. The irony here is that humans were created not to be enslaved, but humans were created to have dominion. Humans were created to rule but through the envy of sin and direct obedience, we became a slave and became paralyzed through what here, what the Bible says, paralyzed through the fear of death. So the champion of God was incarnated as a man, participated in death to nullify the devil's ability to enslave any of God's children. And the bigger irony is that Jesus would use death not as a consequence of his rebellion. He was perfect in his obedience. It was him being consecrated or sanctified to do the will of God. And thus Satan's power, the power to wield death, becomes nullified and ineffective. Against whom? Against the children of God. Those united with the Son. The champion crushed the head of the serpent the tyrant who had mastery over humanity and rescued those who were enslaved by him. He did this by using death because through his death, he brought deliverance to the captives. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the champion who became human and broke the devil's power, thereby securing salvation for his people. There is a parenthetical statement in the following verse Verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. I'm not going to get too much into that. I'll just say Jesus is the champion of the offspring of Abraham, not angels. The salvific work of Christ is reserved for the offspring of Abraham because they were the ones gripped in the fear of death. Angels didn't need a champion. We did. And Jesus is our champion, which leads us to our final point. Point number three, high priest. In verse 10, it says, make perfect in suffering. What does that mean? And he explains it in verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. First, he is made like the children of God, the church of God the offspring of Abraham, the people that needed a champion. In every respect, the addition of in every respect draws our attention to it because we heard this part before, but then he adds in every respect. It's pointing to the perfect and complete manhood of Jesus Christ, the complete humanity of Jesus Christ. And the high priest title is mentioned for the first time in Hebrews in this verse. 
He's going to expound it more and more as we go on in Hebrews. But for now, we are given the character of this high priest. What kind of character does this high priest have? He is merciful and he is faithful. Mercy is what you get that you don't deserve. Mercy is a quality that God gives the sinner. Mercy wasn't something that was required for priests to do, but mercy would have been exercised to the point where you would exercise the mercy of God. And then faithful is being shown as Godward. A priest was supposed to be faithful to the things of God and the duties that are set forth for him. But this merciful and faithful high priest, this is the character that is given to the high priest. He would make propitiation for the sins of his people. What is propitiation? To understand propitiation, we must first go over expiation. And expiation is a very simple, simple uh, word to understand. Expiation is the removal of sin and the guilt that comes with sin. Expiation is the removal of sin and the guilt that comes with sin. And this is what we mean by when we refer to the atoning and substitutionary work of Jesus Christ. That means, what people mean by that, is that our sins and our guilt for sins, when you sin, there is evil that is done, but there's also guilt that you receive for sin. They are all removed. They are expiated and they are placed on Christ. This is important to know because Jesus didn't just come to die. As someone who was truly human, Jesus came and lived a perfect life. Being the perfect champion, he had our sins placed upon him. And then he was punished like we should have been punished. He was punished for our sins. That's when God was then propitiated. Propitiation means something even simpler. If expiation means removal of sin and the guilt of sin, propitiation means satisfaction. Propitiation just means satisfaction. That means our sins were paid for. The wrath of God was satisfied. That, that's why we sing that line in that famous song. On that cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. That's propitiation. It's important to also note that propitiation isn't just an assuagement against sin for God. It's, excuse me, it's God's assuagement against us that gets changed. We were once enemies with God. When you rebel against God, you make yourself an enemy with God. Now, this is somewhat confusing to some people of today, which is sort of surprising, but maybe not really. You're like, why? I didn't, I didn't say anything against God. I have nothing against you, God. And it's like, um, if I take a stick and keep on hitting you over the head, I have nothing against you, bro. I'm just going to keep on hitting you in the head with this stick. Why do you keep on considering me your enemy when I keep on hitting you with the stick in the head? It's like, no, that's not how things work. Just because you say you're not an enemy of someone, the actions that you do is what will say if you're a friend or enemy. I don't do that to my friend. I don't take a bat or whatever stick and hit people over the head. And this is what we do when we rebel against God. We come against God. 
with our actions, with our thoughts, with all the things that we do. When he creates the order for his glory, we're the ones that would usurp it and try to change that order and say, God, I have nothing against you, and yet we keep on trying to hit him in the head. So we were once enemies with God, but now through the propitiation being made for the sins of the people, what are we now? We are now children of God. Jesus took on the sins of his people, was nailed to the cross for them, and this is how God shows love for his people. Like it says in Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God provided the propitiation that we needed through his high priest. Verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, this final verse points back to the unity we have through the work of the champion and high priest, that is the Son. It is designed to encourage those who understand and have listened to the gospel and believe it. It's designed to encourage the believer even when he or she would go through temptations and trials. Jesus also suffered, even though he is our champion. But when he suffered, he still obeyed God's will and proved to be a faithful high priest. He never once divorced himself from his humanity, even when the suffering got really bad. Even when tempted to do so, when you're basically on the brink of starvation and someone comes and tells you, turn this stone into bread, and he doesn't do that because he never divorces himself from his humanity. And because of this, he is able to help those that encounter sin and suffering in this world. This is a hostile world. Sin continues to ravage society and order is turned upside down. We don't know what's up and what's down, what's left and what's right. However, however, there is Someone who is both champion and high priest for his people. We have assurance of our salvation as he identifies with us and is able to help us no matter what temptations and trials we face. Hebrews chapter 2 ends with this note. This is a major section that the author is ending, but he ends with this pastoral note even of assuring God's people, reminding them, that the primary adversary that we've had has been overcome and now God has extended his community to us through the Son. We are being unified, not just to anybody, but we are being unified to the Son by the power of the Son who is the champion and high priest for our salvation. So praise be to God. When we listen to the word of God, we are reminded of our status in Jesus Christ and we are given strength by his Holy Spirit to do what we have been set out to do and that is the will of God. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time that we sinners, justly deserving punishment have been given mercy there's nothing that we could boast of on our own but Lord we recognize that it is through your son that you have been satisfied and that our sins have been removed from us
And now help us to live the life that we have been called to live. A life of fullness, a life that glorifies you, a life that truly leads to abundance. Let's take this time to pray. And just as we have been exhorted all the way in the end of chapter 2, perhaps there is something that you are struggling with, that God is saying you need to trust in me, where your statement and mantra will be, I will put my trust in him, even in this area in life, because Jesus did, and I will follow Jesus as his disciple. So let's take this time to pray, and as the Holy Spirit guides your heart, Lift up your heart to God. Let's pray.